Welcome to Fading Memories, a podcast with advice, wisdom, and hope from caregivers who have lived the experience and survived to tell the tale. Think of us as your caregiver best friend. As you know, my mom suffered from Alzheimer's and cognitive impairment affected my grandmother and great-grandmother. It seems to run in my family, but I've learned my brain health doesn't have to follow the same fate as those who came before me. I am doing what I can to improve the health of my brain, including eating a better diet and exercising. However, I learned recently that when it comes to nutrition, most of us are still living with undernourished brains, and I know I need something to fill those nutritional gaps. This led me to NeuroReserve and their product Relevate. Relevate is a nutritional supplement that restores the vital nutrients for a healthy aging brain. Relevate includes 17 of the most important nutrients that specifically target long-term brain health. These nutrients come from the Mediterranean and MIND diets, which studies have discovered can reduce our risk of Alzheimer's by over 50%. You can use my code FM15 for 15% off of your order. This code is good for subscriptions, which will apply to all future orders as well as individual orders. Go to neuroreserve.com to purchase. The link is in the show notes and you can also find it on my website. Neuroreserve's mission is to help our brain span match our lifespan. In the 1990s, Alzheimer's researchers were full of optimism that they would find a cure for the disease. Genetic studies all pointed to one culprit, hard clumps of protein called amyloid that litter the brains of people with the disease. More than 30 years later, we're still looking for a cure, a treatment, or even a prevention. Much of the research is still focusing on amyloid and tau proteins, whose malformation are classic characteristics of Alzheimer's disease. But other factors likely play a role, including vascular health, inflammation, lifestyle choices, and possibly even viral cases. With the latest announcement of Biogen's drug, there is hope and controversy. There is not much evidence that it will work on most people with Alzheimer's. It needs to be started early in the disease and the cost is staggering. Today's conversation is with two neurologists about the drug and where we go from here. With me today are Jonathan Fellows and Danny Singer. They are from the Mind Online, so it's the Michigan Institute for Neurological Disorders. I got the right state, correct? Yep, correct. Okay, good. <laughs> I said Michigan, I'm like, oh, it's not Minnesota, is it? I, like I said, I'm very terrible with names. Everybody knows that. So we're going to be discussing kind of the generalities of Alzheimer's, what's going on in research, and hopefully we can discuss a little bit about the new therapy that was approved by the FDA that's got a lot of people confused and there's controversy. So thank you for joining me, gentlemen. For sure. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. So shall we start with the, the warning signs of Alzheimer's? What's what's an actual warning sign and what is actual related to normal aging? I was just actually having this conversation with our friends last night. Really good friend has a tendency to do about 15 things at once and can't seem to remember what she's doing. And I think I know for because it hasn't changed in 15 years that that's just stress and not paying attention. So where can we start there? Sure. So okay. 
you know, there's uh, certainly as we get older and our brain shrinks, we start to lose some capacity, some cognitive capacity that is, you know, considered the normal aging process. Um, but, you know, in today's day and age, we really give very little leeway for that. Just to remind people, you know, our grandparents, you know, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, as they got older, they became senile. And that word has really fallen out of favor. So we don't really talk so much about senility as the diagnosis or excuse for having, you know, poor memory or poor function. It's not to say that there is not any change that occurs with aging, but we really want to get towards, is there more of a problem? And when we start thinking about dementia, which is the big umbrella term that we think about and and Alzheimer's disease being the most common one, there has to be memory loss. So that's that's, that's a symptom and a sign really that has to be there. And then there has to be some sort of dysfunction in other, what we call spheres of cognition. And probably the easiest one that to, to talk about is something called executive functioning. So when you go see a neurologist like we are, you, you know, you're going to be asked questions about who does the, who does the bills at home? What are, what are the, what are the, what's the capacity to pay the bills and somebody who maybe paid bills forever in their adult life. And all of a sudden now a spouse or a child has to double check. There's late payments. There's overdrawn on, on, on checking accounts Things like that is the the ability to sort of have this high level executive function is a is really a sign um, that there's something perhaps going on much more than just oh I can't remember that name because when you think about normal aging you know and as as we get older and you know our friends are asking us all the time right oh I I forgot that word or I forgot that name that in and of itself doesn't mean anything it's when there's these other sort of symptoms that go along with it so that would be like. Memory loss that affects daily life. I also like to explain to people like in what's called praxis or difficulty in doing something you were once able to do. And like Danny says, balancing the checkbook, paying bills, driving a car, you know, being able to navigate yourself if you make a wrong turn, things like that. Or even just the thing of like following a recipe. You know, I I use the example of making scrambled eggs. It seems so elementary, but at the end of the day, there's multiple steps that need to be done and need, need to be done in a sequence. And if the individual is starting having problems with that, that to me becomes a red flag. I'm not concerned about like, I walk into a room, I forget what I went there for. I'm not concerned about what's the name of that person again. That doesn't bother me. I'm not concerned about the multitasking. In fact, you know, I, I advise patients, I advise individuals, you know, make that to-do list. Don't set yourself up for an opportunity to forget, but make yourself more organized go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time. Brain, like he says, a senile brain, you know, it likes routine. It likes the ability to have sort of, you know, rinse, wash, repeat day after day, and we can do better that way. But that's not dementia. That's good to know. I always use the example of making the sandwich because that seems so basic until you realize, you know, there's the bread, there's the meats, the cheeses, the condiments, you know, hopefully there's some veggies, you know, there's slicing it. I mean, it's like, that's, mayo. A, that's you like mayo. Yeah. Well, also, and also getting it out of the refrigerator, putting it back into the refrigerator. A lot of steps that like we take for granted, but a patient with dementia is going to have trouble with. Definitely. So do you do you guys see a lot or is it see I always use memory loss that it disrupts daily life as kind of the most obvious warning sign, but I was reading through 
One of these days, I'll remember all 10 of them from the Alzheimer's Association. You know, challenges in planning and solving problems. So that's kind of following a recipe, but it's also like maybe executing a vacation plan, decreased or poor judgment, and changes in mood or personality. I was reading these, looking at them, thinking, which ones did my mom actually have that we didn't realize at the time? And I think it was the poor judgment and the change in mood or personality. That one, the last one might, I'd have to really think on that one. But do you see, are those as obvious as the one we just discussed? Or what other, what's like the second biggest warning sign we should pay attention to? Probably a shorter way of wording that. There's two angles to this, right? One is how much insight does the patient have, which oftentimes is not a lot, right? So in such an Alzheimer's disease, the, the lack of insight is actually part of the disorder. And, you know, they'll say, you know, everything's fine. I once heard a, a, an Alzheimer's lecture where uh, the doctor said he likes to arrange his room so that he's sitting in the stool and the patient is sitting closest to him and about a half a chair length back is the family member. So the family member can do this and can do this behind their back, doesn't have insight into what's going on, is able to sort of confirm or deny what, what the answers are. So I think that a very um, that that is also an answer to your question. I can't say that it's the second most, um, you know, the second most thing that we see, but that lack of, you know, the insight where, you know, my husband made me come, my kids made me come, my whatever, but there's nothing wrong is a is a very common thing, which is I don't think it's denial. I mean, sometimes I guess it could be denial, but I really think it's it's that sort of slow progression where the patient truly thinks they're okay and nothing much has changed. And yet an observer could see that they lack judgment, they lack planning, they lack those things that you mentioned. I remember taking my mom to the memory clinic, must have been early 2018, and the neurologist asked her the standard questions you know, what's your name? How old are you? What year it is? Who's president? She answered like, what was her name? She couldn't remember how long she'd been married. And I, and she, every time she'd answer, she'd look over at me. And so when they asked, how long have you been married? And I said, well, I'm however old I was, 52, 51. So how long do you think? And she's like, I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was fascinating to watch. And thankfully I expected that. So it wasn't a shock, but yeah, it was it was an eye opener to say the least. I've never seen anybody fail a memory test with flying colors the way she did. So another one mm-hmm. uh, to be sort of on the radar that is not just like the executive function or the memory or cognition would be sort of like the neuropsychiatric stuff, you know, with withdrawn behavior or like being in a social situation and finding, you know, finding that individual not able to carry on the conversation the right way. So they exhibit like some you know, withdrawal behavior, depression, you know, sort of like neuropsychiatric symptoms as well to go along with that. Yeah. And that's not just for like introverts like me that don't like to shout to be heard. No, the- that thing, it's, it's something <laughs> different than what that individual may be possessed or exhibited in the past. Yeah. It's basically their brain. It takes longer to process what's going on. So they're like the speed of how they can communicate is slower than what's going on around them. And so they just kind of check out, you know, they don't, they don't participate because it's extremely difficult, is my understanding. I haven't actually witnessed that because I was never in super social situations with my mom. I can only think of their 50th anniversary, and that's going back nine years. So it's like 
I'd have to think on that one for the details, but I knew at the time that it would be kind of overwhelming for her. So it wasn't a surprise that she kind of floated around between all the people that she should have known was family and closest friends, I guess. Still a lot of people. It wasn't as big a party as we would have had for her, them, if she had been not affected with Alzheimer's. So is there any other warning signs that we should know, like to be aware of for like those of us that are or were caregivers? My friend was saying she gets a little freaked out when she forgets. We were talking about following a recipe, something you've done, you know, make, make that family recipe for decades. And all of a sudden you start struggling with it. And she said she she gets a little panicky when she forgets the exact measurement. Is it half a cup or a quarter cup or whatever? And I said, I don't think that's it. I think it's just she's a scientist, so she likes specifics. But what other warning signs should family caregivers and those of us that are aging should we be watching so out for? I guess the other thing would be is that, you know, the two main lobes of the brain that Alzheimer's affects the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. And the temporal lobe is where mapping occurs. So when you park your car and you go into the grocery store and you walk out of the grocery store, it's your it's it's the storage in your in your temporal lobe that allows you to know where where the car is. And again, something we take for granted that we just remember where we parked. Um, and the same is true even with mapping in regards to, to driving. Today's day and age is a little different because so many people are relying on GPS all the time. But um, and the next generation coming up even more so. But you know, people who always said, "Well, I never needed to use my navigation to go to fill in the blank church, the grocery store, the doctor's office, or even it's interesting." You know, in in our field, you may have someone say, "God, you know, I've been seeing you for three years, and they got lost on the way, right? So they've they've been here four or five times, you know, to our clinic, and now they got lost on the way." Again, a very a very big sign would be, I would just say generally mapping, whether it's parked car, you know, driving, things like that. I always get frustrated when I get in the wrong row of cars because most of my listeners know my mom had Alzheimer's for 20 years. Her mom had vascular dementia and my maternal great-grandmother had senile dementia. You said that word we don't use anymore. She died before I was born. So I don't even think they knew very much about, you know, brain disorders back then. I don't know because I wasn't around. But I recognize that when I park my car and I look at it and I look around the surroundings, it's like, okay, car is here next to X. And you go in the grocery store or wherever and you come out. Now it's flipped around. That drives me bananas. And I'm very visual because I'm also an artist. So it's like I get a little panicky when I'm like temporarily like I'm in the wrong row. And I actually get embarrassed, even though nobody can tell that I can't find my car. <laughs> But I think that's all pretty normal. Part of it's to also not paying strict attention. So the, I was fairly certain that most of the audience would be familiar with all this, but it's also nice to kind of hear from experts in the field like you guys, just to kind of what we should be aware of, especially for ourselves. Um, my paternal grandmother lived to be 103 and her brain was fine for about 102 years. And then in the end, I think she'd had some strokes. So I hope to God I take after that side of the family. <laughs> I do have genetic traits that are definitely on that side of the family. So crossing fingers. So what what's going on like in well, when we're talking about like research, there's as we I said before we started recording, I always read all these articles, you know, that Alzheimer's or dementia might be connected to poor oral health or poor gut health, which kind of scares me because my daughter's got Crohn's disease. 
Uh, what's the other one? Uh, oh, hormonal levels. Duh. The one that <laughs> the one that always worries me. Where are we at on research? You know, what what what's going on? What's exciting? What's not exciting? I'll let you guys run with that one. Yeah, I mean, it's a big topic, a big question. So this this we can we can branch out quite a bit with that. But I think we should start with what's exciting right now in that we have a new drug that's FDA approved as of just a few days ago for really what's called a disease modifying therapy for the treatment of mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease or mild Alzheimer's disease. So that hasn't been done since 18 years ago when the last drug was FDA approved. And those Although you can consider them, quote unquote, disease modifying, I would, you know, we would argue that, you know, this is like sort of like next level things. And this class of drugs called monoclonal antibodies, uh, not unique to neurology, not unique to medicine. I mean, going back to autoimmune diseases and things like that, like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease. So doctors have been using these drugs for a long time. We've been using them in the neurology world for the treatment of MS for for many, many years. So we've gained greater experience in infusing this class of drugs, monoclonal antibodies. So these are sort of like where a lot of research is being put forth right now in, you know, sort of like genetically uh, determined medications to really target specific proteins. The protein that this drug targets in particular is what's called beta amyloid. And beta amyloid is this really sticky protein that sort of infiltrates neurons. Those are the brain cells of the central nervous system and essentially renders them inactive. And eventually the neuron just dies off. And the more neurons that die off, again, depending on the location of where they're at, the more dysfunction that we can have in our central nervous system. So that's a big deal in terms of that. You hit on a few a few topics. I'll let Danny chime in next and see where he wants to take this. So I think that all of those other things that you mentioned, you know, sort of the the gut health um, is an example that's gotten um, some press in recent years, really a little bit more in Parkinson's disease, quite frankly, than in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and they're definitely, you know, there's all kinds of things about the gut brain connection. But I would say that the real breakthrough in that regard hasn't necessarily occurred. I think we're getting closer, but you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, we don't have anything yet. Um, I think that the hormone issue is especially in you know women when you talk about estrogen replacement and postmenopausal, you know, to me that that's a pendulum that's always swinging and it's you know <laughs> risk and benefit, whether you're, you know, are you more concerned about you know your mental and 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 cognitive health and or then there's the the malignancy issues with some of the female malignancies that, that come into depending on what your genetics are in that regard. So I think that, you know, everything is really patient specific in regards to, in regards to all of those different risk factors. So somebody who may have a very strong history, a uh, family history of Alzheimer's disease, you may want to push down a certain path when and, and that's in someone, let's say, has no history of breast cancer or doesn't have the BRCA gene. You know, so there, there are definitely a lot of different um, variables, I think, in, in all of medicine. And there are actually some companies right now, especially in, in the cancer world, but I think it's going to go on um, elsewhere, that for centuries, we've really dealt with the medicine of how to treat the masses. So most of the trials have all been, you know, what can we do when you're diagnosed with the disease? And, and how do we, you know, what can we give the most number of people that could work? And now with, with the 
it sort of invention of, of learning more about a single individual's genome, their genes that they have. There's a lot of targeted therapy, targeted therapies and a lot of different disorders. Again, cancer being the, the probably the one that's on the forefront of this. Um, but I have a feeling that that's going to sort of leak into other genetic disorders, Alzheimer's being one of them. And we're going to be able to do some sort of, and it may or may not be in, in our practice time, but I think that in, in the future, you're going to be able to say, like, take a blood test. Here's your personal genome and, and risk factor. And we should manipulate this or that to try to make sure that that disease doesn't come to the surface in you. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that's under that umbrella called precision medicine. And that that is a whole area of medicine that, number one, is, is simply not taught in medical school. That's something that individuals, if they have interest, they go on later to, to learn about that or other, you know, health professionals, what have you, and things like that. You know, you talked about the gut-brain connection. There's really not that, there's not that link to go to Alzheimer's. You know, really everything goes with like that, that sort of secondary term called brain fog. So, which is still real and which is still, you know, uh, problematic for individuals and patients. But, you know, if we talk about the gut as like, you know, that third nervous system, not the central nervous system, which is our brain and spinal cord, there's the peripheral nervous system, all the nerves in our arms and legs. Well, then there's the autonomic nervous system takes care of the stuff that's behind the scenes, make sure our heart beats, make sure we breathe without having to think about it. We sweat, fight or flight type of thing. And then there's that enteric nervous system as well. And that's really, it's better understood, but still in the grand scheme of things, it's really poorly understood in terms of how the enteric nervous system really connects with the central nervous system. We do know, for example, like if you eat a really unhealthy meal, you know, you feel kind of fatigued and tired afterwards. So there's lots of chemicals, hormones, receptors, things are being targeted that make you feel badly as to what that really means in terms of brain cell death or causing Alzheimer disease, that link's not, that link is not there. Hasn't been connected yet. Well, that that's kind of good news. Cause like I said, every time I read that they think there's this gut brain connection with diseases, I get very concerned about my daughter because she's almost 30. She's had Crohn's disease since 2014. And it's just, it seems like there's a lot more Crohn's nowadays or there's more diagnosis of the disease. So that kind of concerns me. And that her eating wasn't great in high school and college. It's better now. Yeah, My mother's e eating was terrible. <laughs> yeah. It does make you wonder, you know, in terms of foods now versus foods from a hundred years ago, in terms of what the cow eats and what the, you, and then you eat milk, you know, again, I think there's a lot of really fascinating and interesting data, interesting articles, but again, to take that leap to say that it's disease prone, you know, there's lots of anecdotal stories. There's lots of anecdotal evidence to, to take the big leap of say, for example, we know that, you know, if you have a 16 time greater risk for the development of Alzheimer disease, than if you had two E2 alleles, for example. So that's that we know that's real. And that's, that is an area for targeted medicine. That's an area for precision medicine though. You know, how, you know, would we advocate an unhealthy diet? Absolutely not. But there, there, there is, there, there, there's stuff to be said about the, the gut brain connection, but to take the leap to say that we can cause Alzheimer's disease because of it, it's that, that, that could be viewed as controversial. Okay. I believe that. Uh, my household, we very much try to eat as clean as possible, as chemical free as possible. That started 
like, ooh, 12 years ago, because both my husband and I were grossly overweight and my dad was diabetic and he did not watch, he did not take care of his diabetes. He had a donut kidney donation, didn't take care of that either. Basically died from kidney failure, which really frustrating when you technically have three kidneys. But I had a client who was a doctor and she said, you have a family history of diabetes, you're overweight, you're screwed. And I was like, that was the best term she could have used for me because I was like, I will show you I am not screwed. And so it took a it took a lot of effort. It took a lot of trial and error to find what worked. I don't fall into the typical category of cutting back on the basically the starchy carbs and eating more protein. I actually have to really balance it quite well. And that worked out great until I hit menopause and was taking care of my mother and life life happened and pandemics. And it's been a little bit of a zoo the last few years, but we're working on it. I'm somewhat convinced, and you guys can tell me if I'm completely off base, that our modern lifestyle is not good for our brains. We have like multiple stress inputs, you know, like family, jobs, commuting, just general stress from daily living. We don't always eat the way we should. We don't sleep as good as we should. We don't get as much exercise as we should. And I I really think not that it's that that causes Alzheimer's, but it ramps up your risk. So am I completely off base? Not that it's going to change my life, my my habits at all if you tell me I'm wrong, but I'm just curious. I think it's on the same continuum of what we were saying before. Um, I don't know, again, that I can take the leap that it increases your risk, but it's certainly not healthy. Again, you know, being on your smartphone all day long, you know, the, the, the stress of just getting through the day, the days are complicated. You know, if you have poor sleep hygiene, if you're eating processed foods, if you are missing meals because life is so hectic because you're driving three kids, five different places, all of that can be just, just downright stressful to the body and the brain. So I think that everything you said is hundred percent correct. I think that, you know, we should be striving to simplify our lives. We should be striving to eat as clean as we possibly can. I mean, no one can argue about clean living, you know, clean eating, getting good exercise, taking care of your mental health, you know, all of those things are really important checkboxes. But having said that, Alzheimer's disease in particular is a genetic disorder. So is it again, always genetic? In, it's in your genome. Interesting. So I should get a genetic test. Well, well you can. 23 yeah. and me will do it, you know, so 100 bucks. You can you can find out that and a whole bunch of other, you know, traits and genetic abnormalities. So it's interesting if we talk again about, the, about this new medication for a second. Previously, I was, I mean, the word against may be a little strong, but if, if a, if a, offspring of one of my patients asked me, I generally would counsel them to not get tested. And the reason is, is that it may change the way they do things. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, medical ethical questions about that to know about something when a, you may not live long enough due to another problem to have it ever come to fruition anyway, um, or B that there's nothing to do to intervene. Once there is treatment to potentially intervene, or let's just say, let's let's make an assumption with some of the controversy about this new medication, that it, it over time, it is very clear, at least in very early disease, it's beneficial. Well, that might be reason then to test offspring. You're at risk and then do some sort of ongoing, whether it's every year, every couple of years, some sort of test to say, as soon as we start to see a decline, 
this is the time to use this medicine, right? So knowing may make a difference in what we do, but there are definitely a lot of medical ethical uh, decisions that are made in disorders where we don't have good therapy for. Yeah, we were just talking about that last night. I was explaining to my friends, they asked, you know, well, what's with this controversy? And this is probably oversimplified for you guys, but essentially, I guess one clinical trial barely met its target and the other one didn't. And it wasn't, the participants were not diverse enough, which is a really big problem when you consider people of color have a higher risk of Alzheimer's than whites. And there just was, they didn't, the oversight board didn't think they should approve it. And my opinion is, and still was, especially after what you just said, is that even if it's an M&M, if it gets people to pay attention to their health, get tested earlier, get, start getting baseline cognitive screenings so that we know when something's happening, we at least know that this is abnormal instead of me trying to convince the doctor that yes, my mom is showing these really strange signs that aren't normal. And she's basically telling the doctor that I am full of it. And the doctor has no idea because they don't know what normal was five years ago or a year ago. And I kind of think at least if, even if it's, even if it's completely fake, false hope, if it gets people to plan ahead, check off, you know, take care of your legal, you know, requirements, talk to your family about caregiving needs and wants. And like, how are you going to handle all this stuff so that you don't end up like most of us with that Tuesday afternoon emergency phone call that upends your entire life for a long time. But that's, that, that's my opinion. It's nice to hear that there's, um, Reasons to get tested and not tested that aren't, I'm just terrified of finding out. Because I've talked to a lot of people prior to this drug being proved, it's not available yet for use, that they're like, oh, I don't want to do the blood test because I don't want to know. And it's like, well, I don't really want to know either, but I would like to at least be able to prepare myself and my family so we don't have to go through what we went through with my mom, what my mom went through with her grandmother or her mom and what my grandmother went through with her. It's like, can we break this chain? Because it sucks. You know? So Again, that's back to the I mean, that's an age old medical ethical dilemma that there's no good answer for. But <laughs> both 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 of those responses are correct. I don't want to know because I'm afraid and I don't want to know because I do want to know because I'm afraid. Yeah. And I, so, I keep bouncing between the two. So I did not, I knew that Alzheimer's was sometimes genetic. I didn't realize it was always genetic. That's interesting. How did I not know that? Other risk, let's say it's somebody who is an alcoholic or somebody who has, uh, you know, was a boxer and has, you know, re recurrent head trauma. So those people that have these likely other forms of dementia, if you were to look at their brains under a microscope, they probably have the pathology of, of Alzheimer's also, the what we call plaques and tangles. So they probably do, do have that. And a lot of those, what we call vascular dementia, those things are probably a little more mixed, quite frankly. If you were to look under a microscope, obviously we don't do brain biopsies um, in this disorder. So you don't always 100% know and again, until this new medicine came out, I hate to say it this way, it didn't always matter. Patient had dementia. We're going to treat their symptoms. We're going to put them on medicine the best we have. And we're going to you know, counsel the family and, and the patient. Now it matters more because there's a potential treatment. So what's your opinion on the, the two trials? Did the, I mean, I, I kind of respect that they need to do a third one. Are you, do you 
agree with that? Um, well, it's not whether we agree or not. The FDA already told us. So the answer is yes. <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah, it was, again, this is one of the issues with pharmaceutical companies and how they conduct trials. It's one of the risks of being first. You know, people now, other pharmaceutical companies that have similar molecules that will do similar things, i.e. sequester the bad protein, get rid of the amyloid from the brain, they will be able to model their trials in a way where individuals were critical of Biogen's trial, you know, the first one. So the second one, they remodeled it a little bit to show better, you know, efficacy, if you will. It's not, it's, it's still highly legitimate. It's still very, it's still what we would call very effective relative to what we had before. It's a novel, brand new type of treatment. So ultimately, that was enough compelling evidence for the FDA to sort of say, yes, this is something that is completely different than what we've had before in order to treat this disease. That's a reason to approve it, A. And B, on the other hand, there are some risks, there are some concerns, and we also are concerned about the initial data. Now we want to look longitudinally over a, a prolonged period of time and see what the data really evolves to be out in real world practice. That happens all the time, not necessarily for the FDA to make that statement, but what happens in sort of the lab or what happens in a small number of patients, hundreds or thousands compared to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients, you glean new, you know, new data, new information as any pharmaceutical, any treatment really can be brought to the masses. So I think it's, you know, I think that at the end of the day, it's a very new different or it's a very new treatment that really deserves to be studied more. And that's what we're going to continue to do. I like to hear that. You guys probably just love, you know, between the COVID vaccine and and this, you know, the general population is just like, we almost feel hyper-focused on every little tidbit of health information, whether it's like, obviously, I did not read what you just said, and that makes me feel better. It's like, oh, okay, there. so this is like the beginning. It's not like, okay, we found something that we think works, and that's great. So that that makes me feel better. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, you're going to read, I have read about neurologists around the country saying, I'm not going to use it for X, Y, and Z reason. In our practice, and we have an infusion center here at our practice, we are planning on using the medication and giving these families and patients. And so we hope to be part of that ongoing data collection. And if you get a time where either the risk factors, you know, or side effects become where it's not worth it, you may, you may learn that also, by the way, you might learn that when you get to the tens or hundreds of thousands, there's some safety concerns that become a little more prevalent. So there's a lot that you learn when a drug hits the market in the first year or two. Um, and this one's going to be scrutinized more than most because of the way it hit the market. But having said that, we've made a decision and we're, we have a, you know, a very large practice of over you know 20 neurology providers that that we are going to be using this drug in the appropriate patients um, who have the appropriate testing because not only do we want to be again part of that long-term solution but we want to give the patients and their families some hope i can respect that when do we assume and i'm not assuming that you know for sure when is this going to become available like a year less than a year no, less now. Yes, we, we have we have drug on order right now and are just waiting, waiting for it to arrive so we can start to infuse patients. So, but again, <laughs> again, the 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 number of 
patients and families that are, are going to call or come in because they want the medicine and the number that are actually going to be able to receive the medicine are much fewer. I mean, it's just a matter of, it's really only indicated for those most mild patients and then who either have a, a special kind of PET scan and or a special kind of biomarker in their spinal fluid that Medicare is going to allow us to infuse. By the way, we want to do it the right way. We want to pick the right patients. The problem is that you know, a lot of people have been waiting and waiting for this to come out. And unfortunately, a large majority of them may, that have been waiting for two or three or four years means they've had the disease that long, probably are beyond that most mild phase. It goes back to my belief that hopefully it will help people get tested sooner. My mom, we knew that something was wrong with her in the early 2000s. And she, in 2008, went through all the testing to become a kidney donor for my dad and was rejected because of cognitive impairment. And until 2017, I thought that was when she was formally diagnosed. It wasn't until after my father passed away and we were putting her in memory care and I talked to her general physician. They said, I need to see all the diagnosis and I need all the health records so I know what the heck they weren't telling me. And, you know, them, my parents, not the doctor's office. And she was not formally diagnosed until September of 2011. She was 69 and a half. And at that point, it was, I mean, in 08, it was like, yeah, duh, tell me something I didn't already know. So by 2011, she had to have already been like in the the later mid stages. I don't know if that's how you guys refer to him, but definitely was having executive function issues that were very obvious by then. So being diagnosed that late was just like, well, that's useless. And if we went back to, she started showing, I believe, showing signs in 96. We had a family business together and she would take orders from clients and forget to write directions and due dates and other useful bits of information. And it was really easy to dismiss because, you know, we had a busy business and the phone rings and, and then somebody comes in the door and the next thing you know, you haven't written down Mrs. Smith's directions. And then you go and you have your day off and somebody else got to deal with your disaster. But that started happening more and more. And the other thing that I think may have played a part in maybe the earlier onset of this disease is that she was in a car accident in December of 91 and she hit her face so hard on the steering wheel that it permanently damaged the nerve that comes through your cheekbone. So her face on one side always felt like the Novocaine was wearing off and it ruptured every blood vessel, vein, etc. in her eye. So her entire eye was bloodshot for weeks. It was not pretty. And I cannot imagine that 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 didn't affect her brain negatively in some way. Whether it triggered the Alzheimer's, I don't think so, but I don't think it helped. So what can the general population do to help research move along, maybe move along a little faster? Besides, you know, we could could all join clinical trials that we're qualified for. What other things should we be thinking about so that we can help find a cure for this disease before it affects an entire another generation of people? The easy answer is money. (laughs) Always money. (laughs) Right. So obviously, you know, there are a lot of horrible things in the world to donate to research. And this certainly would be one of the top ones on on the list. Um, I think taking advantage of the information through the Alzheimer's Association, which is a, you know, an unbelievable organization um, in order to you know, try to educate people, look for the warning signs, um, and then to help guide them to find, you know, neurologists or 
memory care clinics or geriatric, geriatric psychiatrists who, who take care of these kinds of problems um, to try to help wade through sort of a very scary, a very scary path. So I've talked to people about brain donation. Is that still important? Sure. I mean, again, more opportunity to study. And, you know, again, the big ones over, over recently were the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the, the multiple, NFL players. Yeah. With neuropsychiatric depression, anger, crime, suicide, homicide, <laughs> everything that's associated with those brains for individuals that were, you know, high, high functioning athletes that then sort of, you know, had all sorts of other dementia like problems, again, non-Alzheimer's. So the answer is, of course, yes. Okay, because I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you guys a story. I think I hinted in the email back in November of 2017. There was a researcher from the UC Davis, so University of California Davis, which is not far from me, came and talked to my support group through the Alzheimer's Association. You could tell, and my listeners know, I am very active in the Alzheimer's Association. <laughs> this researcher came and talked about what was going on, and this was what was that five four years ago? Lord. And I immediately said, that's what I'm doing. I'm donating my mom's brain. My mom sort of died suddenly. Not she fell, broke her leg. I didn't get to see her the last two weeks of her life because of the pandemic. I did see her the day before. So you guys don't have to have pity on that part. She passed away. We go through all of the normal steps that one goes through. And I wish I could remember which episode I was recording when it dawned on me. Holy crap. I did not donate her brain. I ran downstairs and called the mortuary and they're like, oh, we were just about to call you and tell you she's ready for pickup. She was cremated. So one of my missions is to help make brain donation a little bit easier. Like I am an organ donor. My whole family knows this. It's on my driver's license. The doctor knows it. But if I wanted to donate my brain to science, my understanding is the steps are I'm supposed to tell the mortuary that we're going to donate the brain to science so they keep it separate. And then I guess I'm supposed to make the plans for how to do that. That doesn't sound like the most efficient way to get that done. Am I correct on that's the steps or was where I learned that incorrect? I don't know that answer, but you bring up. <laughs> bring up a good point. It's really easy for like your corneas and your heart and your lungs on your driver's license. And quite frankly, I never, I never gave it much thought, but it's, uh, it, it, it should be, it should be made much easier. There are certain neurological disorders that, um, the brains are sort of collected at certain places. So John brought up CTE, you know, that's generally Boston is where sort of the hub is for that. There's a, a disorder, um, you know, Crookesville-Jakob disease, it was called CJD of Kion disease, sort of mad cow in the human, that brain bank is actually in, in Ohio. So there are certain disorders where we really don't know, you know, really, really deep in the research part of it. And, and it's sort of well known. And I was going to say, I sort of looked at him when you asked the question, because I don't know the answer either in regards to, uh, to the Alzheimer's brain. Okay, well, I am basically between several large research centers. We got UC Davis is like north east and then San Francisco is about 50 miles west and then we've got Stanford. I'm not sure if they've got a research center. We got UCSF and Davis. I think those are the two big ones that are closest to me. So I, I had no planned uh, go ahead. No shortage of like high end researchers on your side of town. Good for me. Well I had like I said this is sort of one of my missions in life. And because my mom died at the very beginning of the pandemic, 
I have not been able to go and visit these places and say, hey, look, this should be really simple. I shouldn't have to tell the funeral parlor, you know, like, I don't know, box up mom's brain or whatever. <laughs> just That just sounds awful. And I know the importance of it. And so that, you know, it's still on the keep list. Posted. Keep us posted on how that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what should, um, got any last bits of information, advice that we should take with us before we go off on the rest of our days here today? I guess I would say just go back to, you know, sort of healthy lifestyle. So eating, exercise, and sleep are probably, you know, the three best things that you can do for your brain and for brain health. That would be, you know, number one. And then number two is, you know, again, I, not to freak out because you, you know, walked in, walked in a room and forgot you were going to get your, your keys or, or whatever it was. But as soon as they start to see something, you know, go and get it checked out and, and better to go and get it checked out and have the doctor say, you know, yeah, I think that that's just normal. There's not much going on then to, especially today, to miss that sort of ultra mild phase. And by the time you get there, it's too late to get this new therapy because there's going to be more of these therapies coming out, probably pretty similar at this point. And, uh, and so to be sort of have that on the tip of your frontal lobe, if you will, um, <laughs> in, order to, uh, in order to make sure that you're looking for it in your friends and family, I think it's important to talk to your doctor um, about that. And we would urge you to get checked out, not just to make sure that we're not, you know, missing, God forbid, like early dementia of some sort, but there's other metabolic diseases, other neurological diseases that, you know, all memory loss doesn't have to just mean dementia. There could be thyroid dysfunction. There could be vitamin B12 deficiency. God forbid, there could be a brain tumor. There could be seizure. There could be a lot of different things that just need to get checked out. Now, again, we don't equate walking into the family room and misplacing your keys with you have a brain tumor. So don't, <laughs> don't let's not make that leap. No, that's not good for your brain either. That's that kind of horrifying stress is not good for you. How right. can we help our general physicians? Because we all know how the health system works right now. You go to your general physician and you tell them, I'm noticing these changes and they concern me because... How do we help them not lean into more of the, oh, I think it's normal or it's just aging? Because I've heard a lot of stories where a doctor will tell their loved one or the patient, oh, I have the same problem. It's just aging. And yeah. we are becoming well, I, more aware that it's not always just aging. Yeah, I have two, two answers to that. Um, the first would be in any disorder that, you know, any kind of complaint, you feel like your doctor is blowing you off. You probably should get another opinion. So that's just as a, as a general proposition. When I give sort of memory care lectures to primary care doctors, um, I encourage them as part of their yearly physical to ask the question, you know, have you, is there any weight changes? Is there any chest pain? And then the answer is, how is your memory? And if the answer isn't just good or fine with no qualifiers, what I mean by that is, oh, it's pretty good for my age. Oh, it's pretty good compared to my friends. So no qualifiers, right? As soon as there's a qualifier for my age, that means that there's a problem. It may be normal for age, but it deserves a little more of a workup. And that's when I encourage the primary care doctors to then, you know, they have two choices. One is to work it up themselves in the same way that a patient who says that they have intermittent chest pain, they can work it up themselves or send it to a specialist like a neurologist or a geriatric psychiatrist. Some somebody who can dive a little deeper. And if you use the chest pain as the analogy, 
you know, a family doctor probably would never say, oh, I get chest pain when I'm exercising sometimes too. <laughs> it's, it's normal. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to say that. So, so you would, you would hope that when it comes to memory, I would really encourage them just that one simple question. How's your memory? If the patient is adamant, like I'm good, I'm fine doing everything might normal. Okay, good. Then they're good. But as soon as that qualifier comes, I think it deserves a little more of, a, of an in-depth look. It doesn't mean there's a problem, by the way, just needs more of an in-depth look. Now that's an excellent way of asking. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask my friends that I'm like on the younger end of all my friends. Like I've got the friends we were with last night are all retiring and I'm 54. So I don't know. I work for myself. I don't know when I'm retiring. <laughs> so it, you know, they kind of lean on me because obviously I'm in this world. You know, when they have questions about like memory loss and what's going on with this new drug and stuff, they always ask me. So now I like that question. I very much appreciate this. This was fascinating. It um, helps put into perspective a lot of the stuff that I read because I obviously read the simplified <laughs> non-medical journal stuff because I can't understand the rest of it. And I'll just start ignoring some of it because there's not enough evidence. Well, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. This was. And this was is there awesome. any benefit to the listeners going to your website, which is mindonline.com, I believe, or is it .org? .com. 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 Is that mostly for your patients or is there any information or anything they should access there that might further this conversation for them? Both of those. I mean, for our patients, there's access to our patient portal, but also general neurology information, if you will. You know, we, we, we treat the gamut of neurological diseases and disorders, not just, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, but other things as well. So there's, there's information and links and things like that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate this. I appreciate your time and I look forward to learning more about these new targeted medicines because that sounds very fascinating. For sure. Take care. Have a good Thank afternoon. Thank you. Well, that conversation definitely gave us some hope, some things to work on, and some things to watch coming in the future. I hope you felt the same way. Now, there are two weeks left in the listener survey and we've added a few new items. We have an Alzheimer's music player that you will absolutely love. It's super easy to use. We've got handmade greeting cards, stuff from my hometown, books, the fidget blanket, the neuro reserve, two months of Relevate. I'm still looking for more cool stuff, but as many of you know, also on the road. So you never know what I might find to stick in this basket. The link is in the show notes. It is on my social media channels and you should be able to find it on the website my web guy got that done the way he was supposed to. So make sure you enter. I really would like to know your thoughts, your opinions. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I can take it. Coming up next week is episode three of the Neuro Power Hour with Dr. Christopher Howard. And we are being joined this time with his friend and personal trainer, Austin. We are discussing does exercise actually help prevent Alzheimer's. Additionally, we're talking about very specific exercise things we should be doing as we age to maintain our cognitive health, to maintain our balance so we don't have falls, which we all know are very bad for us as we age. It is a highly specific exercise preventing Alzheimer's conversation. And you're going to love it because Christopher and Austin are friends. They've been friends since like high school and it's just a fantastic and fun conversation. 
And as always, I will be in your ears again next Tuesday.